Welcome to Inside Talks, a podcast hosted by MedEngine, where we invite extraordinary individuals from within the field of pharma and healthcare to discuss and examine timely topics that are shaping the world around us. In this episode, our esteemed guest is someone you might have seen holding keynotes, wearing EEG headsets, while talking passionately about high-performance knowledge work without compromising our health with an eclectic past featuring a career in professional cycling and coaching. Joining as our third guest is James Hewitt, Chief Innovation Officer at Hensa Performance. Thanks very much for joining us today, James. It's a great pleasure to have you on Insight Talks. So you're a Chief Innovation Officer at Hintza Performance, uh, Director of Hintza's Innovation Lab, as well as a scientist uh, focusing on health and, and performance of knowledge workers. In addition, you are a speaker and published author. So that's uh, quite an uh, exceptional and, and fascinating job profile that you have. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you end up working in the field of human performance? Sure. Um, well, thank you very much for the introduction and the opportunity to participate. Um, it is quite a long title, isn't it? You did really yes. well to, to remember all, all those <laughs> elements. Um, and I've had quite a varied uh, career. And that title is quite a nice way to try and bring some meaning to what uh, sometimes has felt like a, a kind of circuitous path. And it's nice to be able to tell a very consistent story now, but we've probably all experienced that often it doesn't feel like that. Um, I mean, my journey in human performance uh, started probably 17, 18 years ago, really. Uh, I moved to France uh, because I wanted to pursue my dream of becoming a professional cyclist. And at the time, there weren't really any structures or systems in place uh, in the United Kingdom. There wasn't any Olympic development programme uh, as there is now. And so if you wanted to become a great cyclist as an English person, um, uh, as I am, then you needed to move to the European continent. And so... At the age of 19, I left home and moved to the south of France to race for a regional team there. Now, I, um, I did okay. Uh, I got some good results. I progressed through the ranks. Eventually, I ended up riding for a development team for one of the pro teams. It was an elite under-23 team. So I didn't have a professional license. I had an elite under-23 uh, kind of categorization. But I got to ride full-time. Uh, got to, paid a little bit. It meant I could just eat, sleep, train, repeat. And uh, it was during that time that I started to become fascinated initially with my own performance. So how can you develop it and improve it? I was very interested in trying to improve my performance because I soon realised that I wasn't actually very good. Um, I I was doing okay, I won a few races in the UK, I moved to France, started racing around Europe and it was a completely other level. Uh, I realised quite quickly I wasn't the most talented athlete. So I needed to apply all kinds of tools and technologies within the rules to try and improve my performance. Um, outside of the rules, there was a lot of stuff going on, uh, as anyone who follows cycling will know, uh, in the early 2000s. I chose not to get involved with that. That's another story. But um, I was quite an early adopter of technologies like power meters, for example. Um, my teammates thought I was crazy, you know, using all these devices, trying to measure how many watts I was producing, comparing that with my heart rate. But for me, I knew that unless I could really quantify what was going on in that sport, in my training and performance, unless I could really accurately describe the demands of the event that I was preparing for, 
then I wouldn't have the best opportunity to maximise my potential. Um, which, while it perhaps wasn't as great as other people's, I thought, if I can get to 99.5% of mine, where a more talented person can only get to 90 of theirs, maybe I'll be okay. So I pursued this for a number of years, um, but there came a crunch point at the end of my time as an under-23 rider. And uh, I'd had a series of injuries, um, and I was coming back from these injuries, I'd started to get fit again, and I was doing a race uh, in the south of France where I did a lot of racing, and, uh, and one day... Uh, we were kind of racing through uh, the rain, uh, the, the, the weather was atrocious, um, the road was oily, and I was actually going up a hill. Now, there's nothing quite so embarrassing as crashing when you go up a hill, but I managed to do it. Um, we were riding along, you know, putting quite a lot of power through the bike, and, and my front wheel slipped away, and uh, I just had a really bad crash. My knee hammered into the ground, uh, split my knee open right down to the bone, uh, and... Um, and, uh, and as I was kind of starting to come back again from that, um, I, uh, I started to have this fantasy. And the fantasy involved me sitting in the university library, okay. drinking a cup of coffee, looking out the window at the rain, okay. and not having to ride my bike. Okay. And this is a bad thought for a full-time racing cyclist to yeah. have. Um, because I'd been to university um, for a year before I decided to... Uh, take a, um, to defer my course and move to France and try and become a professional athlete. Um, but this thought wouldn't go away. And, um, and when I sat back and reflected, I realised that um, I was um, really passionate about performance and human performance and measuring it and understanding it. And actually, if I was honest, um, my passion was as much for the training and the preparation mm -hmm. and that process of understanding what was going on yeah as it was actually for the racing okay. and putting a number on. And um, during my time of experimenting with power meters and trying to take a more scientific approach to training, which at that time was quite unusual, you know, it really was still about just getting the miles in, uh, just do the kilometers. Yeah. People weren't thinking in a very focused way about dosing training effort, for example. Um, a lot, some, several people had started to come to me for advice, for input. Um, I wouldn't have called myself a coach at that time, but I was starting to advise some people because they started to get interested. How can this skinny English guy suddenly get all these improvements you know, without taking drugs? Um, and, um, and so I thought, you know what? You know, if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably better off focusing my career around exploring this domain of human performance, yeah. trying to help other people to improve their performance, rather than trying to pursue this dream of becoming a professional athlete when the writing was on the wall, really. Um, I rode full-time for a few years, I was never going to win the Tour de France. I was probably never going to be in the Tour de France. Yeah. So um, sitting kind of in my little house in the south of France in a town called Limoux, I made the decision uh, to, uh, to retire at the ripe old age of 23. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, I moved back to the UK um, and re-enrolled at university. Uh, I went to Loughborough University uh, in the United Kingdom. And um, it's a, a, a renowned university for sports science. Um, anyone who's uh, watching this from Finland may say, what about your vascular? Um, which, uh, you know, is somewhere around. But the number one in the world for several years now has been Loughborough. So okay. I'll just get that in there. Um, but it's a great university for sports science. And, um, and so I re-enrolled uh, and studied sports science mm. and immersed myself in this more academic world. Yeah. Um, subsequently, um, tried a few things, but eventually set up my own coaching business and, um, and initially um, started working with a mixture of different athletes. Mm. So I was coaching endurance athletes, predominantly cyclists. I worked with a few 
professional athletes. Um, I worked with quite a few elite athletes. But the, the majority of my clients, we'd say the bread and butter of my business, were actually amateurs. They were people who had very demanding jobs uh, in London, where I was based at the time. And they were solicitors and architects and management consultants and finance professionals. And outside of that very demanding work, for whatever reason, they decided to pursue very challenging cycling events. And so these people would work you know, 18 hours a day plus. They were flying all over the world and they'd arrived back from the airport jet lagged and somehow found the motivation to get on their indoor trainers and hammer out you know, hour-long interval sessions to try and prepare for some kind of sportive cyclist sportive race, you know, mass participation cycling event uh, later in the summer. And I was intrigued by these clients. First, because you know, they were quite unusual specimens. Um, you know, I uh, got paid to ride my bike, um, and, and sometimes that was the only thing that would get me out the door on a tough day. You know, I'm trying to become a professional. Yeah. You know, this is my life. Yeah. Um, uh, not that there was a lot of money in it, but or everything I was revolved around that. But, you know, these people have got good jobs. Mm. They're supposed to be doing cycling for fun. Why on earth would they do this to themselves? So I became fascinated with these people and I became fascinated with their work. And initially this fascination started to emerge because I could see that for whatever reason, what was going on in the workday had a profound effect on their cycling performance. Yeah. So I could see there was this variation in their training performance based on responses of um, heart rate to particular levels of power, for example, yeah. um, that were obviously being influenced by some variables that I couldn't account for. And it was quite clear when I started to speak to the clients and got them to start measuring things like their mood, for example, mm. that um, there were variables related to their experience in the workday yeah. that were influencing their physical performance. So I started to look into this, see what literature there was available. And I realised that you know, while I had all these great sensitive tools to measure endurance performance, like power meters and heart rate monitors and GPS out on the road, I felt like there wasn't really an adequate toolkit to understand knowledge work and the workplace. And there's a lot of great researchers that have gone before me in that domain, but I felt for what I wanted to understand, looking through my lens as an endurance coach, there wasn't necessarily what I wanted. So um, that led to me to start to explore knowledge work more. Eventually, I started to become more fascinated with knowledge work than I was with endurance sport, yeah. and eventually led to this, what felt like a revelation at the time, yeah. which is that knowledge work, the work that most of us are engaged in, where we think for a living, can be viewed as a cognitive endurance mm. activity. Yeah. And that revelation, that knowledge work is a cognitive endurance activity, has inspired much of my work and research today, which is probably why we're sitting here having this conversation. Yeah, yeah, and that's a fascinating journey that uh, that you have made from a professional athlete to, to a scientist, and I, I would say quite an unusual one. Based on your, your own experience as a professional athlete, uh, what do you think are the main things we can uh, learn from the endurance sports uh, to better understand the performance of knowledge workers? You mentioned it a little bit, but what do you think are the main things mm. there? I think there's a number of principles which you can take from endurance sport mm. that I think apply equally well to this cognitive endurance activity of knowledge work. You know, I think that um, one of the things that's clear about uh, endurance sport is that you need to apply effort in the right place at the right time. Yeah. You can't go at maximum intensity the whole time. 
Yeah, there's a funny um, kind of uh, uh, phenomenon where people who've never watched professional cycling before uh, might watch a race like the Tour de France, for example. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's two hours into the stage, and the stage is six hours long. Mm. And um, someone watch it and they say, oh, look at that guy on the front. He's winning. Yeah. Well, he's not winning. He's working really, really hard, two hours into the race. Very likely he's what we call a helper, a domestic. Mm. He's setting it up for someone later. Yeah. The winners know that they shouldn't be applying their effort at this moment. Uh, maybe they're a climber, for example, who needs to wait until later in the stage where there's a mountain. So they, they stay in the peloton, in the group, and save their energy for when they will be at their best on this mountain climb. There's no point them two hours into the stage on the flat, in the wind, wasting their energy. If they were, they certainly wouldn't be winning. Yeah. But sometimes in the workplace, I think that we, um, we view ourselves like machines. Because the work that we do is knowledge-based, yes. um, there isn't this kind of physical expenditure of energy that we're aware of, at least, um, then we think we can be on all the time. We think that we can go at the highest intensity continually. Yeah. And we don't think that it should fatigue us necessarily, even though, uh, paradoxically, we know it fatigues us. Mm. And as a consequence of that, maybe misunderstanding, mm. um, maybe the fact that we ignore it, the fact that we don't want to believe the truth that we're humans and fallible after all. And we try to be on all the time. Yeah. And um, we don't often apply our effort in the right place at the right time. Mm. And I think this relates to this idea as well that um, we sometimes think that we're indispensable mm. and we sometimes think that it, it all relies on us and that um, we're worried that no one else will be able to do it as well as us, especially particularly for those of us in, in leadership positions. Yeah. Whereas we can learn from endurance sport to recognise that different people have different strengths. Yes. Um, different people will be better at different times, in different places. And, you know, there's a whole kind of uh, the concept of circadian rhythms and chronotypes that we can maybe get into and talk about. But fundamentally, in endurance sport, we know that it is crucial to recognise your strengths, your weaknesses, and then your natural rhythms and your patterns, and then try and align your work yeah. to apply your effort in the right place at the right time. Because yeah. if you do that, your effort can be multiplied. Yeah. We can see like a climber, if they make sure they save the effort for that climb, mm. they will accelerate, they will maintain a higher speed than anyone else, and they have a chance of winning. And if we do the same in the workplace and take that principle and understand ourselves and our teams better, and apply that cognitive effort, in the right place at the right time, to the right project, yes. then our efforts can be multiplied too. Mm. And perhaps that means that we can achieve greater things. But for many people, I think they'd just like to achieve the same, but maybe increase the margin that they had in their life. Yeah. And so there's several principles, but I think the number one is about applying effort in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Do you use these learnings in your own work or any practical tips how to, how to use these things? Mm. Well, I think there's a number of levels to look at it, um, uh, a number of ways to look at it. I do try and apply it to my own work and life, and um, it's, uh, I'm not perfect, obviously, like none of us are, and, uh, but I try and probably do it 80% of the time. Yeah. I think one of the most practical operationalizations um, of this concept day-to-day -day is in relating the work that you do with your chronotype. So chronotype describes our, um, uh, our predisposition towards what we call morningness or eveningness. So depending on what research you read, about one in five people have this preference towards being morning types, might call them early birds. They generally feel at their best in the morning. Another 20% 
feel their preference. They've got this predisposition, actually, at a cellular level towards eveningness. They feel at their best later in the day towards the evening. And then everyone else falls somewhere in between. But regardless of where you are on that spectrum, the day will follow a pattern. If you're an early bird, you'll generally experience a peak in the morning, this kind of valley, this dip in the middle, and then a rebound towards the end of the day. If you're a night owl, you prefer evenings, or you've got this predisposition towards being this late type, then you'll probably experience it in reverse. The start of the day will be a rebound, you'll still experience this valley in the middle, your peak will come later in the day into the evening. So one of the simple ways to apply effort in the right place at the right time is to recognise which of those chronotypes you are, maybe also recognise it in your teams as well. And sometimes when you can, sometimes I say one day a week, try to synchronise the most demanding work that you have to do cognitively with the peak period in your day. Because you're likely to be able to concentrate better for longer, you're likely to be able to focus uh, for, um, with, with greater clarity, and essentially your cognitive performance will be better in that peak period. And so aligning your most demanding work with that time should multiply your effort. The valley is a great opportunity for rest, yeah. for actually scheduling some recovery in your day. Few of us do that. Uh, maybe put a 15-minute break where you're going to put the phone away and go for a walk, for example. And then the rebound is actually a time where we start to recover, but our inhibition is actually slightly reduced. So our inhibitory control, impulse control. So during that rebound period, we're more likely to switch and be a bit distracted anyway. So that rebound period is a really good opportunity to do the switching tasks and the menial work and the little jobs that aren't particularly demanding, that sometimes leak into every part of our day. And if you're an early bird, do that in the afternoon rather than starting the day or trying to do it throughout the day. And obviously the reverse is true um, for if you're one of these evening types. But there's lots of different ideas, but that's probably the most practical way that day-to-day you can operationalise that apply your effort in the right place at the right time principle. Yeah. What's your experience? Are people usually aware of uh, their type, if they're a morning type or evening type, and do they apply these types of ideas uh, mm. of how they, how they do their work or, or balance their uh, recovery and, uh, and active periods? Mm. It's a good question. And I think that we all have a natural sense of what that uh, predisposition is. Mm. But um, many people, many of us, actually um, have a wrong impression of what that predisposition is okay. because of how we sleep and our work patterns. Mm. So you know, sometimes um, I think that we've got these ancient brains yeah. with these uh, industrial institutions and what sometimes feels like godlike technology yeah. that is omniscient, yeah. all-powerful and omnipresent. It's everywhere. And it's distorted our experience of the world in some really profound ways. And so there's many people, who, for example, who think that they're morning types mm-hmm. because they have to get up for work yeah. early every single day. Yeah. Um, but I sometimes say to people, what happens when you've had the opportunity to take a real break? Mm. When you've had the chance to go on holiday, and maybe if you're lucky enough, you don't have young kids like, uh, like my wife and I do, and to wake up when you want to wake up, and go to bed when you're tired. And if you manage to do that for maybe 10 days, Mm. what predisposition emerges? And sometimes you'll find that the people who thought they were extreme morning types, Mm. actually, maybe they're not. Maybe they're somewhere in between. Maybe they're even evening types. Um, On the other side, some people who thought they were evening types 
only thought they were evening types because they hate mornings. And they only hate mornings because they weren't sleeping enough. Yeah. And suddenly when they go on holiday and they get to sleep adequately and they've got less stress, they find they're waking up early in the morning, feeling full of, full of energy. They're actually a morning type. Uh, it was just the use of technology late into the evenings, the mm. stress of work, yeah. having to fit in these kind of industrialised processes of being in the office for a mate till six or whatever, um, stuck to this ancient brain that really wants to wake up with the sunrise and go to bed with the sunset. Yeah. Suddenly when they experience a slightly more natural way of life on yeah. holiday, yeah. the true predisposition actually emerges. So I think some people are very aware um, of their chronotype. I think many of us aren't. And I often encourage people to do an experiment uh, related to that holiday. You know, it, try and go on holiday. And during that time, try to go to sleep when you feel tired. Wake up when you're ready. And limit your use of technology and bright light in the evening so you can get back to a slightly more natural rhythm. So it works well in the summer, uh, not in Finland, where you know, it's bright all the time. Um, and see what happens. Yeah. But I, it's, it's quite funny that still... Uh most of our interventions uh, that are known to be effective are uh, eat well, sleep well, and exercise. Yeah. Don't smoke and drink. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah exactly. So. And, I mean, I think that's, it's an interesting, uh, it's a good observation, I, I totally agree. And um, you know, one of the challenges of this health and well-being space uh, that we're in, and this health, well-being, performance space, is that there is so much bad information yeah. that hides behind complexity. And, you know, um, if you try to follow all the health and well-being advice out there in the world, mm. um, you know, you could, um, it's, it would be quite understandable to feel like you were failing unless you were um, waking up at 4am to finish your seven-day fast, drink a kale shake, deadlift, mm. meditate and check your ketones before, you know, everyone else has had their first coffee of the day. Yeah. And um, all this complexity, not that there's anything inherently wrong with any of those um, kind of practices, mm. um, but there's a lot of bad information and confusion hiding behind this kind of veil of complexity and what I call scienciness. Yeah. The, the simple things still often work best, yeah. but just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. And, I think, and that's, the, that's the challenge. You know, yeah. Sometimes we like the idea that we can kind of, you know, Uh, adopt a particular diet or kind of, you know, uh, buy a particular app when really it's simple things consistently, day after day, yeah. as you say, eat, sleep, move, yeah. that make the difference. Yeah, yeah, sure. So do you use these self-tracking tools yourself in your uh, everyday life? And if you do, how, how you use the data that you collect? Mm. So sometimes is the answer. So okay. I am... Um, tend to track things with particular devices periodically for a particular purpose. Mm. And so, for example, if I'm going through a very stressful period, I'm quite often quite interested to try and quantify how stressful that is. Uh, so an example of that is I, um, I was at the World Economic Forum uh, in Davos last year, and uh, it's, it's a super intense week. Lots of meetings, presentations, um, parties... Uh, and uh, it's really fun, but there's a lot of demands and um, you're always on. It's also at altitude, Davos is at altitude. So for that week, I decided to um, use a, a monitoring device uh, to monitor my heart rate, my heart rate variability and my sleep. And, um, and, but I did it for a week before and then a week during to see what the difference was in terms of that stress and load. And you can see that you know, my uh, sleep was worse, my physiological stress was higher, 
Um, and, um, and so it was interesting. And, but it raises the question, what does this tell us over and above what we are perceiving and feeling? Did I really need that device to tell me that that was a stressful week? No. Um, you know, I think that often these devices are useful um, as a way to um, try and quantify or test whether something is working or not in the case that um, our intuition can lead us astray. Um, and so um, I'm a big fan of using devices um, on myself and also uh, other people to, to test things when I'm trying a new intervention or a new thing and I want to see whether it's making a measurable difference um, and when I think that um, I'm prone to deceive myself. Uh, and then I think it's really useful. Uh, you know, an example of that is um, with, uh, uh, with alcohol, actually. And so um, we all know that alcohol is bad for sleep. So alcohol sedates us, it does not restore us. Mm. Alcohol completely screws up um, your sleep cycles, your patterns of non-REM and REM sleep. It, unfortunately, uh, as much as many of us enjoy alcohol, um, it is unequivocally bad for sleep. Um, and, uh, but we know that it's a dose-response relationship, though. And, um, and I live in France, I live in the Alps. Uh, if you don't eat cheese and drink wine, you, know, you practically get kicked out of the country. Uh, I'm very happy to participate and go along with that. Um, and so um, I was in the habit previously of um, most evenings have a glass of wine. Mm. Not a big glass of wine. Yeah. Um, you know, a kind of French wine glass, a small one, a red wine with my dinner. And, and I was like, and it's dose response. You know, it's kind of maybe at seven o'clock. I'm not going to bed until 10, 30, 11. It's not going to affect me. Um, and um, in that case, if I'd relied entirely on my intuition, I'd have continued like that um, with no problem. But I know the evidence. I said, okay, I'm going to measure what's going on. I'm going to do my own experiment and see what happens when I eliminate um, this uh, alcohol from my evening consumption. Um, and, uh, and see what the effect is. And so I did an experiment where for a period of weeks, you know, I had a control, I had a few weeks at home, which is quite rare, um, but I did uh, consecutive weeks where I could test out my normal drinking um, uh, with uh, kind of going teetotal uh, during the working week, Monday to Friday, uh, and to see what the effect of that was. And I saw um, uh, a significant improvement in, um, in sleep duration. Um, so I was, sleeping, I was sleeping for longer and I went to sleep faster. Um, but also, um, I was looking at um, uh, the uh, number of wakings during the night, um, wake after sleep onset, um, and then uh, probably most importantly, how I felt in the morning, um, which is quite a sensitive measure of how good your sleep was, actually. And objectively, when I tracked this, stuck it in a spreadsheet, um, my sleep was significantly better um, uh, when uh, I removed the alcohol. And so I'm not perfect but um, I've significantly reduced my alcohol consumption, even though it wasn't um, massive before. Yeah. Mainly now drink on social occasions and generally don't drink Monday to Friday. Yeah. Uh, and if I drink at the weekend, um, then uh, I'll generally drink at lunchtime uh, uh, because uh, earlier the better, is what science says. Yeah. I'm not an advocate for drinking at breakfast, but you, know, you could potentially make a case for it if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, you've been working with uh, with um, really like uh, top performers for for some time already, and uh, uh, I'm interested. Uh, can you see any like uh, common features uh, among these people? Are there mm-hmm. uh, some uh, certain things that these really top top performers really share? Mm. 
One thing that you see in top performers in any domain uh, is passion. And, and I think there's a drive for whatever they do um, that goes deeper than just um, it being kind of something that they like um, or something that they are interested in. Even though they do like it and they, do, they are interested in it, they like it and in, are interested in it to such an extent that it's a deep part of who they are. Uh, and that's you know, one of the ways that I describe it, it being a passion. And, um, and so you see that in business people. Um, high-performing business people that I've worked with, uh, you know, uh, um, people in uh, high-level positions in management consultancies and in, uh, in finance. But you also see it in sports people as well. Um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Formula One drivers um, that uh, we're fortunate uh, enough to work with at, at Hinsa and other motorsport series, uh, but also athletes in different sports as well that, that we work with. And, and you see consistently, these are passionate people. But I think one of the other characteristics related to that that I see in high performers in both sport and business um, is that uh, that passion has a light side and a dark side. Mm. So um, I'm a bit of a Star Wars fan, and, uh, and passion is a bit like the Force. You know, passion is this binding force, and it's very, very powerful, but it has a light side and a dark side. And actually, there's a body of academic literature that describes this. It conceptualizes passion as either being harmonious or obsessive. Okay. And harmonious passion um, is like the light side of passion and an obsess obsessive passion is like the dark side. And just like the dark side of the force, it's powerful and there's something that attracts us to it. See, harmonious passion, the light side, is characterised by um, feeling uh, like the work that you do is, is challenging but almost effortless. It's also been associated with the experience of flow states where you're so engaged with something that you lose track of time, where you feel these continuous sense of achievement. In harmonious passion, you can do that hard work, but you can actually even enjoy it. But perhaps most importantly with harmonious passion is that you choose to engage in the activity. You are in control. You have autonomy over that activity, and it doesn't control you. Whereas the dark side of passion this obsessive passion is characterised rather than this feeling of endurance and energy, it's characterised by what we call rigid persistence. And it's this experience of feeling like you have to keep doing it even though you know it might not be good for you. So you see harmonious passion in a business person or an athlete, for example, where they are maybe going through a period of time where they've got to work long hours. But they get home after that long day in the office feeling like they've really accomplished something, feeling like they were at their best, that they were really getting to use their strengths and what they felt they were really good at. And they might be tired and they get home, but you know, they say to their significant other or their partner or their friend, yeah, that was a tough day, but we did something meaningful, we did something good. You feel that sense of satisfaction. Uh, and because you were choosing to do it and you were working with your strengths. Obsessive passion for a business person is characterised by getting home at the end of that day just feeling like you still can't switch off, that it's, those thoughts are still there, yeah. that you're ruminating unhelpfully, uh, that the work is controlling you, that you still need to open your laptop at 11 o'clock at night and continue working on that proposal because if you don't, a bad thing will happen. Yeah. And, but it matters. It's still a passion, yeah. but it's the dark side. Yeah. And, and it's related to what I was talking about earlier. It's all about me. Yeah. Um, if I don't do this, everything is going to fail. You see it in athletes as well. You know, harmonious passion is the athlete who finishes that incredibly demanding race. 
who is exhausted, who maybe didn't even get the result that they were hoping for, but knows that they did their absolute best mm. and, uh, and that they learned something through it and they still experience some of the joy of taking part. Obsessive passion for the athlete often manifests itself in an athlete who feels compelled to train through injury, and even though they know it might hurt them, because they've lost sight of that bigger picture, because they feel like they have to just keep going. They can't miss a training session. Uh, they can't let people down. They can't let themselves down. Their judgment is clouded. And so I'd say that passion is probably the number one characteristic that I see in both high-performing business people and sports people, and, and that the overuse or the inappropriate application or the distortion of that incredibly powerful force is perhaps uh, the greatest weakness uh, or the, the greatest stumbling block for, for many high performers. Yeah. Do you have any idea where does this type of uh, extreme passion come from? Mm, well, where it originates? In the psychological literature, um, uh, obsessive passion is correlated with a number of other uh, variables. And it's actually quite strongly associated with perfectionism. Um, and, and so you know, one of my uh, kind of views uh, uh, based on that is that, that often uh, perfectionism and some of the drivers of perfectionism can be, uh, is a really powerful driver for this obsessive passion. Um, and um, it kind of relates to what we're talking about with technology and data as well. Um, so a lot of athletes now, amateur and professional, use uh, training software. And um, there's some very popular, the various different uh, types of software out there. Many of them feature a kind of calendar view for your training program, where the training sessions that you do um, uh, kind of uh, even uh, synchronize with your devices, like a Garmin or whatever device you use. Yeah. And then um, the data is in there in the calendar view, and you get a green box if you completed the session um, appropriately, a kind of orange box if you completed the session and maybe you went too hard or too easy. And then the worst of all, a red box if you miss the session. Yeah. And um, there is this desire to kind of fill it with green boxes. Mm -hmm. But not only that, if a coach prescribes a session with a particular intensity and a particular pace, there is this desire to, um, to hit exactly those values that the coach has prescribed. If it's a cyclist, a given amount of power for um, a prescribed amount of time. And for those of us, me included, with these perfectionistic tendencies, you know, there's a temptation to ignore what you're feeling. And so if the coach has prescribed you know, five-minute intervals uh, with five minutes recovery at however many hundreds of watts in an interval session, and you don't feel good enough for intervals that day, you don't want to get a red box. You don't want to let the coach down. You're worried that maybe you won't achieve what you want to achieve if you don't do that session, and you can start to fall into that obsessive passion. Interesting, the original research um, uh, that conceptualized this obsessive and harmonious passion in the literature, um, they did a, several studies to come up with something called a passion scale, mm -hmm. um, a kind of a, a psychological instrument that you can use to uh, measure your obsessive versus harmonious passion. You can find it online if you're interested. Um, but um, they actually, in one of their studies to validate that scale, um, uh, used a group of cyclists, funnily enough, uh, in uh, Ontario, in Canada. And their hypothesis was that... Um, the people who uh, scored highly on this obsessive passion scale would keep training through winter in Ontario, in Canada, even though it was icy and there's a high probability they'd fall off. And so I do think perfectionism uh, uh, is, is one of the drivers. There's others as well. Um, and we see that in the workplace as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, imagine you're preparing a proposal for a new client or you know, whatever kind of work you're in, um, or a slide deck for a presentation. That's the classic one, you know, management consulting. And at the end of the day, um, you just can't switch off because it has to be just right. Yeah. 
And I think you couple that perfectionism with an environment which um, uh, perhaps reinforces and amplifies um, that desire for perfection. And you can end up with a quite toxic mix. Yes. Um, and, and actually, there's a lot of consistency there, I think, uh, between um, passion in sport and business and also the drivers of it, uh, particularly as that pertains to perfectionism. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Talk about the cost of stress for our society. Mm. I mean, it's, it's clear that stress is a pervasive issue. Maybe we should start with a caveat that um, if we want to be exact, stress isn't necessarily good or bad. Mm. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a phenomena. It's a response to a stimulus. Um, and, um, and it's really our response to stress or maybe the magnitude of stress that is going to determine whether it's going to be helpful or not. Um, if we didn't have any stress in our lives, probably wouldn't be a great thing. But it's funny because, you know, with that said, um, uh, you know, the kind of the academic in me wants to kind of describe that for completeness. But in reality, um, I don't know anyone who's asking for more stress in their life. Um, so, you know, really when we talk about stress, generally, it's a, it's a pretty bad thing. Um, you know, the economic cost is, is huge. Um, uh, I think, you know, we're seeing massive increases in um, uh, stress-related illness, in absence associated with stress-related illness, in occupational burnout, Uh, the World Health Organization has now classified uh, burnout uh, in its categorization of, uh, um, of diseases. Um, and it's multifactorial, obviously, um, but stress uh, and too much stress um, is, is obviously a significant component in, in work-related burnout. So um, I think we'd all agree that the, the costs to society are, are huge, um, certainly economically. But I think you know, the, uh, perhaps less tangibly, But um, in terms of economically, but perhaps more importantly, I think the human costs are uh, are massive as well. Uh, in terms of you know people uh, people's well-being, um, people's unhappiness, you know uh, rates of suicide, um, you know uh, particularly among men in the UK, for example, um, it's you know young men. It's one of the leading causes of uh, uh, of death of uh, of early death. Um, so um, yeah, so stress is stress is a big issue. Uh, I think it goes without saying. I think you know, the bigger question is, um, uh, given the massive cost of stress uh, to society, what do we do about it? And you know, I think that um, the causes of stress might relate to something that I said earlier. You know, the fact that uh, we have these ancient brains, but we've got these ancient brains which are coupled with these kind of institutions that are from the industrial age, Um, that still think that effort times, um, uh, uh, effort times time results in productivity, regardless of when you put that effort in, and, uh, and regardless of the fact that productivity isn't a great measure anymore because we're not screwing bottle caps on. So we've got these industrial institutions, and then we've got you know, what you could call this kind of godlike technology. And as I said before, it's, this technology is omniscient in the sense it seems like it can do anything for us, Uh, it's omnipresent because it's everywhere and it's always on. And we're trying to navigate this world um, with a kind of a, a, a brain that isn't really built for it. And so it's no wonder that we're stressed. Um, and I still think we're trying to create systems and processes and ways of living um, that uh, enable us to adapt to it. And I'm sure we will adapt to it, but I think that some of what we're seeing in society at the moment in terms of these very, very high rates of uh, high levels of stress and the prevalence of stress-related illnesses um, is a kind of a product of 
as a society, as societies, are struggling and wrestling to try and come to terms with this intersection um, of these different factors. So that's kind of, yeah, that's, they're my rambling thoughts <laughs> on stress. Yeah, yeah. So our culture seems obsessed with high performance. How far can and should we take it? Where is the limit? Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we need to ask the question, what is performance? Mm. Um, because I think that uh, one of my views is that performance is a daily practice, it's not a one-off. Performance is about progress, not perfection. And performance should be about your potential, my potential, our individual potential, rather than it being about comparing with others. So those three things are really, really important. I think if you view performance based on those three pillars, then actually you can take it as far as you want. Um, because we're less likely to get caught up in perfectionism if it's about mm -hmm. progress. Yeah. And, and also, um, if we look at performance as a daily practice, not this kind of peak um, that we'll perhaps never get to, um, then um, it's perhaps going to be more sustainable as well. I think the problem is, is that we, kind of, uh, we don't really define our terms very well when we think about performance and high performance. And, and if performance um, becomes kind of this... Uh, Uh, characterized in this kind of grind and hustle culture, for example, that high performance is about kind of, you know, the 130-hour work weeks that Marissa Mayer talked about when she was CEO yeah. of Yahoo back in the day, um, and, uh, and it's not critiqued, mm. then um, high performance is destructive and you can absolutely take it way too far. I think we see it all over the place. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same with, with athletes as well. We know that um, you know, the pursuit of high performance can be detrimental um, yeah. uh, in the end. But I think the key is, is to really define... What are we trying to perform for? Mm. What are the demands of that? And, and recognise that uh, the answer is probably not balance, um, but to be more clear about what we're aiming for, and then in pursuit of that aim, to identify when we really need to perform at our best and be at our peak, and when we maybe need to accept a drop-off and a recovery. And we have this, this oscillation. And there's a famous quote, um, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, um, I can't remember who it was by now, but... Um, uh, The, uh, the author of this quote said that um, only the mediocre are always at their best. And, and I think there's a principle there in terms of high performance that if we try to be at our best all the time, mm -hmm. if we try to be high performers all the time, yeah. then it's not going to work. Yeah. But therein lies the paradox. At the same time, high performance is a daily practice. Yeah. But that daily practice means that sometimes you need to push into the red. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to recover. And being clear about when and where that is means that we can have a more healthy attitude towards high performance uh, rather than it uh, destroying us, which unfortunately sometimes it can. Yeah, but I think quite commonly the situation is a, is a kind that um, someone else says how well you performed or mm. there is a lot of competition in yeah. the workplace or among the athletes. Mm. So I think that's what uh, might drive you to the problems of of. Uh, of the thought of high performance mm. because you're comparing to, to each other and, and um, I think it's quite rare to think that it should come from inside mm. what is good for me. Mm. Well, um, what if you could add or remove something from the society? What would that be? That's a profound question, isn't it? It's a deep question. Well, I think we'd all recognize there's a lot of things that 
we could probably do better as a society, uh, that we need to change. Um, at the moment, one of the things that I see in how we live um, is that um, there are rarely opportunities to pause anymore. Um, one of the greatest adaptations of the human brain relative to other species is that um, we have the opportunity to direct our behaviour um, more sensitively um, and with greater precision in between stimulus and response. And so, um, you know, I, uh, uh, um, my wife and I were spending some time in the Lake District a while ago and her aunt's got a big dog. We took the dog for a walk in the forest near the house. And um, the dog, uh, this big golden retriever, saw a squirrel and just went for it. It, it, there was a stimulus, the squirrel. Yes. The response was run across the field yeah. and we actually lost the dog. Um, and uh, it, uh, we found it, uh, it kind of came trotting down the country lane a few hours later, covered in the blackest, most sticky mud that you've ever seen. Mm. And it was delighted with itself. It had the time of its life. There was no pause between stimulus and response mm. in that dog's mind. Mm. But as humans, with human brains, we have an opportunity to pause between a stimulus and a response. Mm. Uh, to make a decision, to decide where to apply effort, um, so we can apply it in the right place at the right time, potentially, uh, to decide how to respond uh, to a situation, to an interaction. And I think if we look across society, you know, whether that's in the political realm, with technology, even in our, in our own relationships, um, we have, uh, increasingly it seems like we've lost, or we're not using that capacity to pause between stimulus and response. You know, we blast off an email instantly if we feel like you know, someone has wronged us. Yeah. You know, we send explosive tweets across the world uh, in an instant. You know, we decide to just uh, you know, don't resist the urge to uh, watch another episode of Netflix when it pops on autoplay and compromise another 45 minutes of our sleep. Yeah. Instead of taking a step back for a moment and pausing and thinking about what we do next, and so if I could kind of um, not necessarily add but restore something in our society, it would be for all of us to, um, to remember what it's like to pause, to rediscover that ability to create a slightly longer gap between the stimulus and response in terms of what we say, how we act. And I think if we did that, um, it would probably have quite a positive effect, net, both personally, professionally uh, and beyond. Thanks for joining us in another episode of Insight Talks. To find out more about MedEngine and how we are bridging medical science with business, head on to medengine.fi.